0: Welcome to Inland Around War, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights on contemporary issues
1: related to wars. In this episode, Ilya Siatica from Privacy International discusses the protection of the right to privacy and personal data in and outside of wars. Specifically, with respect to data collection using new technologies and state surveillance.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to In and Around Words, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. My name is Paola Gaeta and I'm a Professor of International Law at the Geneva Graduate Institute. And today I'm hosting this episode with Antonio
1: Coco. Hello Paola and hello to all of our listeners. My name is Antonio Coco. I am a lecturer in international law at the University of Essex, a friend of Paola, and an alumnus of the Geneva Academy, where I also worked as a teaching assistant for a few years.
0: Thank you very much, Antonio, and uh, thank you for your friendship, which is highly appreciated. And uh, we are good friends, no? Yes, we are. Yes, and we're also a very good co-host of podcasts, perhaps.
1: Hopefully.
0: <laughs> Hopefully. So anyway, for those who have listened to our last episode, you have learned that the second season of this podcast is focusing more on the professional experiences of our our guests, of the alumni of the Geneva Academy. And today we are very excited to have an exceptional guest, Ilya Siatica, who's been a former PhD student of mine at the Geneva Law Faculty. Hello, Ilia.
2: Hello, Paola and Antonio. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's really, really a pleasure. And and as you said before, we started, Paola. I know both of you for more than 10 years. So it's a great pleasure to be here uh, with you today.
1: The pleasure is all ours, Ilia. I should say a few words to introduce you to our listeners, Ilya. For all those who are right now listening to us, Ilya is a Programme Director and Senior Legal Officer at the non-governmental organization Privacy International, which is based in London. And, as Ilya was saying, has been a friend of mine for a long time. So welcome again, Ilya. I think we are ready to start talking about what you do at Privacy International.
0: Yes, indeed. I mean, what is interesting for me to know, and perhaps to our listeners, is... What do you do for this organization? Could you tell us what does the organization promote and what's your job about? Uh,
2: Yes, with pleasure. So uh, Privacy International, for those that do not know it, is a non-governmental organization that, as Antonio said, is based in London, but we work internationally uh, with partners. And we research and advocate globally against government and corporate abuses of data and technology. So we would expose harms and abuses. We will mobilize allies globally. We will campaign with the public for solutions and we'll put pressure to companies and states alike to change their policies with regard to the use of new technologies. So this is a very abstract thing. So going back to uh, what I am doing at PI, Often we abbreviate and calling it PI. So as it was said, I am a program director and a senior legal officer. So half of my job is to lead one of the four strategic areas that PI has that focuses specifically on state surveillance and asking for state accountability with regard to the use of new technologies. We are looking into collaborations between states and Companies to conduct surveillance activities, something that has been always considered a state prerogative. Now it's often dependent on the hands of uh, private actors. And so we are, we are exploring these synergies and we are trying to identify uh, regulatory gaps, abuses, lack of transparency and uh, challenge them and put pressure in uh, identifying solutions. Another part of our work is looking into uh, what we call securing our digital life, and it's focusing on system and data exploitation, specifically, for instance, of exploiting vulnerabilities. The most famous example recently has been the
0: Pegasus scandal, Can you tell me more about this Pegasus scandal? I didn't follow it.
2: So it's been in the news for a few years now. Well, we assume its government across the world have been using a specific type of spyware called Pegasus, produced by an Israeli based company called NSO Group. And researchers and civil society, specifically Citizen Lab and Amnesty International, as a beginning, started uh, then finding this type of exploit in various phones, mobile phones of activists, journalists, and uh, human rights defenders across the globe. One of the most famous examples where the use of this software, this spyware, has been identified has been the Khashoggi murder. The journalist of the Washington Post that had been brutally murdered in the Saudi embassy in Istanbul, and uh, there it's it's been identified that actually many people close to him had been targeted with this spyware close to the period around his assassination. So one of his uh, good friends and associates, his wife, his fiance, they were all, tar- they appear to have been targeted with this software. And what this software allows you is to basically have full access to the mobile
0: phone without the person
2: realizing.
0: And that's the scariest part. Yeah, but what do you do when you have cases such as this one, uh, such as this? I mean, uh, how do you make uh, uh, the principle of accountability be realized in practice? What do you do? There are many Actions you can take when this type of cases
2: come, and some of them are still ongoing as we speak. So, hopefully, it will bring uh, more cl- transparency and accountability. But, first of all, uh, the one thing that Privacy International doesn't do, but others do, is identify specific individuals and bring those cases before uh, the relevant jurisdictions of the countries where these individuals are residents and uh, call for accountability. Another way to do it and which has been happening, and that's an interesting part, is that by using this type of software, actually the company has violated the terms of conditions of major companies. So actually WhatsApp and Facebook, as well as Apple, have brought cases against NSO group in the US, which is the first time that something like this is happening. Then beyond that. You can use uh, these cases to actually bring more clarity with regard to the corporate structure and which jurisdictions they would be liable for such abuse. And then, last but not least, is uh, advocate to states uh, and before various international organizations with regard to the legislative framework around the use of this spyware and uh, certain actions that they could be taking so as a result for instance of these revelations the um, European parliament has started a special investigation into this company and other spyware companies and we've been called in to give evidence uh, and they're giving specific recommendations to EU member states. The Biden administration a couple of days ago issued uh, a commitment to actually, together with others, bringing better regulation and halt abuses around the use of such type of technologies.
1: Thank you, Ilya. You have mentioned quite a few times, of course, that states and governments are involved in this kind of surveillance or spying activities against human rights defenders. I was wondering if this happens, in your experience, equally in in times of peace and in times of war. Uh, As you know, our podcast is called In and Around Wars. And I was wondering, do you see these kind of surveillance activities also in the context of wars?
2: Absolutely, it has been quite quiet until now, but I think the Russian-Ukraine conflict has brought it forward more than any other uh, instance before where we saw actually cyber attacks, which quite often involve the exploitation of vulnerabilities in the uh, infrastructures of the parties to the conflict, occurring on both sides. And then uh, also we have seen more and more as well, even humanitarian organizations that operate in conflicts being much more exposed to this type of attacks in the um, conflict zones where they operate.
1: Have you provided advice uh, to any of these humanitarian organizations on how to deal with this kind of surveillance or breaches of their data?
2: I mean, it's it's an ongoing um, discussion in a way, because um, humanitarian organizations need to depend uh, more and more into technologies in order to be able to conduct their operations which makes them dependent on new technologies to provide the necessary aid. A, a very famous example was uh, Russ, last year, very close to the date of the start of the war, the Russian invasion. ICRC was actually victim of a breach where one of their servers had been attacked and there was a major leak of data and information around their operations. They are ongoing conversations, and we've been very closely collaborating, for instance, other with the International Committee of the Red Cross, the ICRC, uh, around their policies and measures they are taking to protect themselves. Uh, we've uh, equally been talking with uh, UN agencies such as uh, OCHA. Office for the Coordination of the Humanitarian Affairs has been also one of our close interlocutors with regard to the necessary measures uh, humanitarian organizations need to put in place to ensure that the data they collect do not become the target in in very uh, sensitive and dangerous uh, zones. It is quite often, I mean, you know better than me where humanitarian organizations operate and with whom they need to talk to in order quite often to ensure the delivery of uh, humanitarian assistance. So you can also imagine how actually the data they collect can be of much interest to uh, different malicious actors that they are interested in identifying the location of certain individuals or that they would actually would want to halt the movement of groups of individuals from one area to the next. You could do that by just tracking the movements of humanitarian officers.
0: Ilya, what about the data which may be collected to document the commission of atrocities? Because I guess that you could have also no data collected in this regard. And then, then you might have an issue concerning the, the privacy or privacy of the victims of such atrocities. I mean, what come first as a, as a value to be protected? The, Privacy of the victims, uh, the possibility to bring to account those responsible.
2: This is an excellent point with regard to actually the collision between the right to privacy and the need for bringing justice uh, to victims. It is an ongoing battle. Uh, There has been persistent efforts to actually bring. Some clarity with regard to how we should be doing that. How 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 do you balance out the desire to, to collect this evidence to be able to prosecute some of the most atrocious crimes in the world versus the need to actually ensure everyone's privacy and protection and, and to find a balance between the two? Uh, it's it's an impossible exercise. But as we all know, the right to privacy also, is, it's, it's not absolute. There are certain interferences with the right to privacy that they are permitted. They're allowed. And if we use that as a guidance, there are certain data that could be permitted to be collected for the purposes of prosecuting crimes. As long as there are rules that they're respected and, and that there are certain security protocols in place. And uh, this is, I think, something that it's an ongoing process of finding out. An excellent attempt to bring further clarity in that regard has been the Berkeley Protocol. The protocol provides uh, guidance with regard to investigations of international crimes, but also ensure that uh, the privacy of the people involved is uh, respected.
1: Ilya, we've been talking about this collection of data for documentation of atrocities. But of course, when we talk about protecting the right to privacy, we have to understand who is the the bearer of the duty to protect the right to privacy. So with respect to the documentation of atrocities, which are the entities that collect this data and which are the entities that instead can threaten the security and the protection of this data?
2: So when we're thinking about who is collecting data as evidence for prosecuting international crimes, one can... Think of multiple actors that they are involved in the process. So you will have the parties to the conflict, that they will have an interest of collecting information for each other quite often. In, in the circumstances, there will be the humanitarian organizations that they are in the field and they are collecting this information. And depending on which humanitarian organization we are talking about, they have they are covered by different rules so not uh, every humanitarian organization in the field will be as restricted as the international committee of the red cross to share information they collected then you will have u.n bodies that they are also collecting information while being there and then you have also ngos human rights watch Amnesty international and others would be very much inclined to collect this data with the, the conflict in syria there have been organizations that have been created with the sole purpose of collecting evidence that can be used as proof. And each of them bears its individual responsibility. Traditionally, we consider human rights to be primarily binding states, but actually with the right to privacy and the developments around, especially the data protection legislation, this is directly binding anybody that collects and holds this information. And so that means that companies as well, where this data is hosted, bear a degree of responsibility.
0: Well, you mentioned a variety of actors which would have been under the duty, you know, to protect the, the, the privacy in data collection. In your experience, what is the, the actor with, with which it's easier to deal with? I mean, is it the UN? Is it the private companies? Is it the state? I mean, what's... Which actor would you choose?
2: <laughs> Ooh, such a difficult question. I would have to cherry pick depending on the situation uh, and depending on which actor we are talking about, there will be a difference whether you're dealing with a state that has already data protection framework and it's very much keen to properly regulate with a state that has no data protection laws and they have no interest. And then also it depends on the size of the organization. Like an organization, depending on their size and the funding they receive, they will collect more data. They will have different degree of responsibility.
1: When you, when you mention the size, does it mean that a, a smaller organization is more likely to comply with these rules or the opposite? A bigger organization is more likely to protect data as you would wish them to protect them.
2: So I would say that there is no way to just uh, answer that by simply saying uh, that organizations with bigger size are more likely to comply or vice versa because it really will depend on the the individual case of the organization. Uh, Bigger organizations are more likely to have official processes and procedures in place. The International Committee of the Red Cross have been publicly committed to not collecting specific data, to introducing data protection principles. Smaller organizations, while they may not necessarily have such an official presence with regard to how respectful they are, they might actually have appropriate processes in place that uh, allows them to protect. Major problem they are facing at the moment though is the fact that they have quite often to deal with uh, big tech companies when you're talking about needing to use Facebook to conduct your operations or to contact the beneficiaries it's less likely that you have the organization will have any say to how Facebook deals with this data Uh, these big companies are not created in a manner to create exceptions and more protective rules for some and less for others they are there and have a business model to just collect data for advertisement purposes in most of the cases. And that puts especially small organizations into a very precarious situation. They cannot, they really need to use these tools because most of the people will be on WhatsApp, on Facebook, but at the same time they have to be careful because they might be putting people at risk while doing so.
0: What do you like of your job?
2: It is very interesting to working at Privacy International because every day you're faced with major ongoing problems that they shape our day-to-day lives. But at the same time, because they are so new in our lives, there is a lot of opportunity to actually become part of the change you want to see in a way. Being able to, for instance, work together with organizations like the International Committee of the Red Cross, where we published report a few years ago together called Doing No Harm in the Digital Era, where it was a frustrating exercise because we had to explain to people that, well, when you use Facebook, think of who gets this information. But also it, it was a breakthrough in the sense of bringing different different groups of peoples and different mindsets together and trying to identify solutions that would be implementable in the day-to-day life and would allow the delivery of humanitarian aid without although putting people at risk and ensuring their privacy is protected one of uh, the best cases i've worked in and had not necessarily to do with war, but definitely with national security has been uh, two cases that um, resulted out of the Snowden revelations with regard to the um, mass surveillance programs that the UK government has put in place. They are collecting tons of data of millions of people with most of them not being suspected of any crime. And having been able to bring these cases before the European Court of Human Rights and before the Court of Justice of the European Union, and being able to shape how the legislation of the UK has shifted to ensure more protections. Are they perfect? Are we fully happy with them? Of course not, but it's a step closer to transparency and accountability that we are all seeking.
1: If you had to choose an objective that you would like to achieve with your, with your work, India. In two sentences, or actually, let's do it in one sentence. In one sentence, what would it be?
2: <laughs> you are worse than an interview. <laughs> what I would like to see is states introducing le- new uh, legislations that actually are holding those that they are ready to abuse data into account whether we are talking about uh, a company um, that has as a business model to exploit the data of millions to actually make millions to actually companies whose business model is exposing people to further abuse like uh, resulting to murdering people that would be uh, the one thing that uh, we keep fighting for i'm a lawyer so i'm my my ambitions for my work are definitely much more legalistic and boring than my campaign colleagues. That would be like uh, let's go and take over the home offices and force them to talk to us.
0: Well, to be a lawyer is not necessarily boring anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Ilia, you recently published out of your PhD thesis a wonderful book with Oxford University Press uh, and the title is Serious Violations of Human Rights. Uh, This book has something to do with the the work you currently do at Privacy International, or vice versa? (laughs) Uh, Yes and no.
2: And the face of it may be not that much, but actually the reality is that it has plenty to do do with it. I've been working a lot at Privacy International into making the bridges between violations of the right to privacy and other human rights violations. Uh, something we we often forget is that privacy is a gateway right that ensures the enjoyment of other human rights so quite often for instance a report issued a couple of years ago concerned how kenyan intelligence authorities were actually using surveillance measures to identify people that they were seeking to kill on or disappear I would say this is a serious violation of human rights for sure. And then the other way it it comes into play, it has to do with the fact that serious violation of human rights is increasingly used as a standard, again, which certain obligations come into play. For instance, in the Arms Trade Treaty, serious violation of human rights could be a justification for not exporting uh, arms to, to a certain state. In a similar way, you have the same conversations with regard to experts of surveillance equipment. It's not as established yet, but it's definitely in it as
1: well. Thank you, Ilya. This has been a great, great conversation, and I'm a bit sorry that we have to move towards the end of our episode. But before we do that, we have to respect our tradition in this podcast to ask you for an anecdote or a story about your time at the Geneva Academy that makes you laugh or smile. Something that you remember. Or even the, cry. Yeah. Or even cry, <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> Oof, so many good memories.
0: And a little tears, I understand.
2: And uh, tears, good memories and tears. We were, at a certain point, we were almost living there, I was feeling. Like uh, we were seeing each other every day for breakfast and staying throughout lunch. I mean, one of my favorite things of living at the Geneva, uh, well, working at the Geneva Academy was actually uh, how we could use uh, as an escape in the summer, the lake. And you would all of a sudden out of a, a very nice park in Geneva with a very serious building, you would see that various inflatable items as being coming out the door. Like we had a flamingo in a while, for a while coming out of the door and people would just uh, go for a swim and, come back to work.
0: So, as you see, to study law and to be a lawyer is not boring necessarily. <laughs> One could have fun, no? no? Also at the Geneva <laughs> Academy. So, thank you so much, Ilya, for this wonderful interview. We're very glad to have hosted you and uh, thank you again for participating in this podcast.
1: Thank you, Ilya. And before we say goodbye, I would like to remind uh, all of our listeners that you can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other platform. If you do not want to miss an episode, please subscribe uh, on the platform of your choosing. And if you can leave a review, possibly a, a positive one, it will help us with the algorithm to be listened by even more people.
0: And with data to be collected.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so, so
1: much. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to In and Around Wars, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with Geneva Academy alumni. You can also check the Geneva Academy's website at www.geneva-academy.ch to find more resources and upcoming events on contemporary issues of international humanitarian law and policy.